Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Yes Sir Hater. My name is Mark, and I am with Dennis. Um, one of these days, I'm going to say uh, Miss Singapore <laughs> or Miss Wild or Uncle Tom Cobby's cat or something. But we, because uh, we do a bit of humour, but we, yeah. we we don't want to start off with too much humour. Otherwise, we'll be, uh, you know, we. Uh, we might be diversifying too much away from our serious business of enhancing teaching quality, mate. Right. So I, uh, I, I don't know how your week has been. While it has been fast, I think it's been a bit boring because the, I think the football has taken a back seat and now we are just uh, waiting for the new uh, season to start. So how have you been keeping yourself busy? Yeah, I'm basically doing quite a bit of writing. I'm writing a few um, articles in the local paper. In fact, around the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is student well-being, um, concerns about mental health issues, uh, all something that seems to be significant in the UK, certainly a lot on the national news um, in the UK. And given that we are talking about learning and we we know that learning isn't simply a cognitive thing, but the importance of it being to do with the old person, holistic education, the effective domain. And we want people, you know, we want youngsters who are not just going to be able to get jobs, but to also um, have meaningful and um, sustaining lives. So it's it's quite a big area. So I've been doing quite a bit of writing in that. And um, hopefully um, waiting for the weather to get a bit warmer so I can... Uh, do a spot of fishing, which is quite therapeutic. Right, okay. So let's jump straight into it, I think, because uh, you have given that slight bit of context. And, uh, and I think this is going to be a somewhat uh, interesting topic, but might be a bit serious, but we'll try and, uh, we'll try and do it uh, in a meaningful manner. So I think we are going to really try and unpack the idea of uh, what exactly is the challenge of attaining well-being and mental health. So, especially for students. Now, why is this uh, Why is this a topic that you think should be tackled, uh, much less by two practitioners then? Yeah, well, I think the um, if we go back, if I remember being at school, a um, yep. long time ago, schools did exist. It wasn't, we weren't in an agrarian society quite. Um, but the... Um, it was it was never considered to be something that was, was problematic, that... As kids, we had to get on with it. For example, I was at school. There were school bullies. And perhaps I was kind of fortunate because I learned how to box that I wasn't bullied at school. And um, things, even though it was a rough, tough East London community, and there were challenges, um, certainly, you know, doing schoolwork and avoiding gangs that could be around. But you kind of just got on with it. And yep. In a sense, you, you, you didn't talk to parents about your identity and issues and whether you were intelligent or not intelligent. It didn't seem to matter so much. And I can't remember ever um, conversations of, you know, to do with mental health. You just kind of got on with it. Like if you got right. bullied at school, you, you had to do something about it. If people didn't like you, you, you know, you confronted them or you avoided them. But it seems now that there's more and more... Uh, youngsters who are finding a lack of our personal identity meaning they don't seem to um you know they're worried about being bullied whether it's on social media it just seems to be there's a much an heightened sensitivity about kind of who am i what am i what do i do and i don't know how much of it is what i would say is existential which means as people grow up we all face challenges i mean i remember the work of, I think it was Eric Erickson. He said at each stage of that development, you face things. And as we get older, I mean, for example, uh, when I was 15, and that, I never talked about backache or arthritis, but when you get older, you, you start talking about things like that and you know, planning for pensions and things like that. It wasn't something <laughs> primary school so what i'm saying is there are existential challenges when when i was 15 16 if someone said to me um go and talk to that girl i'd, I'd be terrified even though you know i would like to have done i thought well, what do i talk to girls about football fishing um you know, conkers you know like i'd know you know we all sort of went through those identity dealing with um you know, puberty and all these kind of things we went through those kind of things um 
that's existential. As you get to middle age, you know, the midlife crisis. I don't know if I ever had that. I never felt middle age when I was in Singapore. So maybe that's why I didn't have a midlife crisis. <laughs> you mean you mean you, you mean you don't want to talk about the Ferrari that you bought? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, even though even though the speed limit was like thirty mile an hour, <laughs> but the, the the thing what I'm saying is these are existential challenges, and I think we have to accept that. And I think it is kind of uh, I'm finding now, you know, say at my age, coming to terms with the fact that um, I've got to think more carefully about my health. I've got to yeah. think about you know if I go on holiday, uh, having travel insurance and things like that. You know, I hitchhike through Europe and America. And, you know, live wild. Well, when I say wild, pretty rough. I mean, I often slept on park benches and various things like that. I never thought about becoming sick and needing to go to the doctor. Whereas now, if I'm going to travel somewhere where there isn't a National Health Service, which is the case in probably most countries, um, you know, I've got to have insurance because I might get ill. It's, you know, those kind of things that you think about at different stages in your life and but as a young person it was am I popular you know am I attractive am I going to get in the football team does you know does the uh you know the, the in crowd you know see me as someone who I could join if I wanted all those kind of things and I think part of it is conscious but a lot of it is kind of unconscious and given that the mind and I think this is a big point um that I would make is that we tend to think that the mind is a very rational information processing system. And all the evidence from cognitive science, right from the work of Steven Pinker to Chimiotinsky Mahali, I can almost pronounce that name now, <laughs> quoted, quoted him enough in various sources. You know, it says the mind is, you know, the natural state of the mind is one of chaos. And there's a lot of stuff that I think is true that we think we have more conscious rational control but the evidence don't suggest that in fact a lot of evidence is increasingly suggesting that unconscious aspects i mean we can go right back to freud's unconscious wants and fantasies but the idea that our biology um is shaping us unconsciously which means that when we talk about self-conscious control it's not an automatic it's not the dominant process of the brain in fact it it may well be our biggest challenge to, to to manage not just our thinking but our feelings and our behavior that is a, a real big challenge um i can't remember who wrote a book called the chimp paradox but it's a kind of metaphor for the relationship between the limbic system which yep. governs our emotions you know we react you know fight and flight kind of thing um um, and being able to consciously say, well, hold on, look, I feel like this, but I don't think if I behave in this, this is going to be particularly productive. Like, you know, as teachers, one of the things that we have to learn is if we're dealing with children who are struggling with their learning and, you know, we, we feel we might feel a bit impatient, but we realise this is not going to help that child to learn. It's impossible to keep persevering with trying to find what find out what the child does know, can do and yeah, and, and use those kind of facilitation uh, and interpersonal skills to, you know, encourage the child, give the child examples, things that move on the learning process, that kind of thing, right? Whereas yeah. um, it's, um, it's the challenging thing. The brain is not, you know, despite what some people say, it, it, I would say it's not intelligent design. And it ain't like, <laughs> It ain't my, you know, there's a lot of cognitive psychologists saying the same thing. It's complicated design. I mean, if you look at the 86 billion um, neurons in the brain and all, all the chemicals flying around in our bodies, it, it's complex. But when you actually look at human behavior, I would argue that there is a kind of syntax that isn't really that complicated. For example, yeah. motivation. To me, you've got Maslow's theories, all these different theories. I don't think any of them really stand up um peter drucker once said we um we um we write a lot of books about human motivation but we don't really know anything about it and um my argument would be yeah we do we are motivated by pleasure pain avoidance and novelty and whatever gives us pleasure varies like you know you might get pleasure watching manchester united it would be purgatory to me uh, <laughs> you know some people like um going trekking on holiday to me i want to lie on a beach and relax i don't want to have 
pack on me back and climb up a mountain and perhaps fall down and need to be rescued by somebody in an helicopter. And I don't even like flying in helicopters. So it, it's, I do think that there is um, ways in which we can understand human behaviour and therefore self-regulate it. So that yeah. gives you a big overview of what we're talking about. Okay, so I just want to unpack a few things. So number one, pain avoidance. I always remember Thorndike. I think he did quite a fair bit of work on uh, avoid, uh, people wanting to avoid pain. Uh, but what I also thought was quite interesting was when you said, you know, when we were growing up, I think it was in a, in a different world, uh, you just got along with bu- bullying. And I, and I was chuckling to myself because I think the bullying to some extent, maybe didn't even come from school, but really from the family. You know, uh, you said you never question intelligence. Well, in the Asian family, when I grew up, <laughs> I remember my father and my mother always asking, why are you so stupid? <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. They actually, yeah, uh, I think this is quite common in uh, several Asian families. You know, when you come back with the mathematical scores, uh, mathematics test scores, which are not very good, uh, and, I, and I remember my my parents just confronting me directly, you know, not what, not really caring whether or not it would be mentally uh, traumatic for me. <laughs> it was, why are you so stupid? <laughs> why are you not, why are you not scoring 90? Why is, why? and I think it was quite a decent grade if I'm not wrong, uh, but they obviously didn't think it was decent. Uh, but I turned out all right. Uh, but I, I think it's important not to dismiss uh, the importance of uh, mental health because I think, uh, right now, children uh, or teenagers growing up in a whole uh, different world. So I just want to also point out what you just said, you know, like the brain is not intelligently organized. So my question then is, and I, I think this is something that you, you wrote uh, or, you know, you have written and I wanted to quote this. Uh, and you quoted Apter, uh, a notable yeah. psychologist, uh, who said, everyday life as it is experienced is a tangled web of changing desires perception, feelings, okay, and emotions that filter in and out of awareness in a perpetual swirl. Uh, and you supplement this by quoting Bandler and Grinder, uh, who said it is important to understand that most people are very chaotically organized on the inside. Now, you have that already as a physiology, uh, phys- physiology factor, and then you bring in social media today. You bring mm-hmm. in all the technology. You bring in all the, uh, you know, uh, things that stimulate or overstimulate the brain. Don't you think you have a recipe for disaster? Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, Mark. I mean that. That's exactly, it. and I think that is what is occurring really. And um, it's almost like we've got this hyper complexity yep. with this kind of brain that was very suited to the Stone Age. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and yet we're living in this constantly changing world that's creating cognitive overload, not yep. just in terms of the amount of information, but also qualitative aspects. I mean, if, if you think about it, when when we grew up or when in lots of societies, people learned certain core values about their life, their society, whether it was a religious belief or non-religious belief. And there was a sense of stability. It was easy for the mind to process it. And there were very structured pathways to life. And one could say it was a bit rigid and a bit controlling, but there was structure and meaning. I think what we've got now is so much plurality, so much diversity that um, that in itself is creating a kind of abyss of, well, what, you know, if I'm a young person, well, what, what, what do I believe? What is meaningful? And, and I don't think it's helped with two things. You know, we turn on the news and yeah, there's always been bad news, but you turn on the news now and you, we see the stark pictures, you know, in the Ukraine, we see so many different things, shootings in schools that for a lot of young people, I can see why, what finding meaning and purpose and identity and having to deal with they go on social media and somebody's saying something negative about me it might seem petty i mean in in, in my days if someone said something to me i'll you know, just tell them to shut up or you know i kind of what are you going to do about it mate sort of thing you mm. know kind of, it was like that but now it seems to have become a kind of sort of uh, almost a kind of hubris it's ubiquitous it's like you know, it's it's all around us, and how do we deal with it? And I do see where there's so many, so many, so much of this sort of mental health issues and feelings about identity and well-being is socially produced. 
right. through the, the, the confusion of identities and reality. And that right. sounds a bit heavy, but yeah, you, you know, you, what you said was spot on, I think. Yeah, okay, so I, I just want to, I, I don't want to overplay this, but I just want to just maybe highlight another point and maybe you can shed a bit more light on this. So already they are overstimulated, cognitively overloaded, and then we try and so once they want, and I'm not sure if I'm using the word correctly, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a crash happens. You know, they, they are hyper-stimulated and then suddenly a crash happens uh, and no amount of reward maybe will then trigger any kind of emotional response anymore. So you need, so it's almost like a drug. Is that an accurate uh, description of it? You know, you need to do more and more rewards up to a certain point where they don't matter anymore. Yeah, I, I used to wonder as a kid, I don't know whether yeah. you, I mean, and a lot of probably adults look at that. You say, I mean, I've just been, well, to be honest about it, it's not something I'd watch on TV, but it's been on the TV almost incessantly here, this um, trial with Johnny Depp and his ex-wife, Amber Heard. Amber Heard. And yeah. like, it's, you know, you think to yourself, these are people who are super famous. You know, they were, they were you know, very rich people, uh, got tons of money yep. in this kind of abyss. And I used to think like Elvis Presley, I remember as a kid saying Elvis Presley and thought, you know, I'd like to be Elvis Presley. You know, you, you're a great looking guy. You're only millions and, you know, all the beautiful girls are in love with you. I think, you know, that sounds pretty good to me. I mean, I think that, you know, fire a bit of dopamine. But, right. You know, I'm not going to have a mental health issue. Oh, what a shame. I've just been given another five million and, you know, Miss Wild wants to take me out for dinner and pay. Um, I'm kind of thinking, you know, that sounds like utopia. But unfortunately, I mean, if you look at the, um, I think, you know, there's a lot of work being done on primates, um, Loretta um, Bruning, who, uh, I keep meaning to invite onto our podcast channel, talks about an experiment with monkeys. Now, I'm not saying that because monkeys behave in this way, humans will yep. be... I'm not going to 100% say we can extrapolate from animal studies, you know, animal studies to human studies, but we do share, I think, um, some 94% of our DNA with chimpanzees or, or some other type of ape. I don't really want to make a big issue of it. But what was interesting, that... Um, monkeys were typically fed spinach and the monkeys would eat this spinach and they, you know, it was nutritious and the monkeys, that's what they got, spinach and the experimenters said, well, let's do a bit of an experiment, let's give them juice because juice is going to fire you know, it's a little bit more kind of more of a stimulant, let's give the monkeys a treat and we'll give them some juice and obviously the monkeys you know, they weren't being having probably intellectual philosophical conversations but oh we've been given juice isn't it nice of the experimenters you know they lock us up in cages but they're giving us juice so they're kind of okay la right yeah the monkeys love the juice but what was interesting was that they measured the dopamine levels in the monkeys brains and initially the dopamine levels went up and we know that dopamine is a brain chemical that makes us feel good yeah you get such a rush you know like if me and you were playing for england or even singapore in a, you know in the world cup match i think and particularly if we won that would give us a real buzz yeah but what's interesting i think i was listening once to um a podcast by Johnny Wilkinson. Now, you know, probably one of the best the kickers. Rugby players, it's rugby players, certainly kickers of the last couple of decades. And he's, you know, he, he goes quite a lot into the mind. And I, I remember him saying on one occasion, you know, it was great to win. You know, you win, you know, you win the World Cup and you think, wow, you know, I mean, that's good. But it's a couple of days later or something like that, you know, it's a business of, well, you know, sort of, have I got the sausages in to cook for the kids? And it's sort of, it's it's temporary. It's that height. And suddenly you get back to a kind of uh, a level playing ground. Going back to the monkeys, though, is an analogy. The monkeys like the juice, but the dopamine level started to go down. So the monkeys are getting the juice, but they're not getting the dopamine rush anymore. Anyway, so the experimenters go back to giving the monkeys spinach again. And guess what the monkeys did? They got into a rage and started throwing the spinach back at the experimenters. <laughs> What's this? So, in a sense, the, the, the point about success and fame and just yep. going for, you know, the dopamine rush. Yeah. Uh, sort of like advertising it, you know, it's, I'll oh, get this, get this, get this. So, you, you know, we're running around and eventually, well, you know, it's like 
where does that go? I'm not saying it's not good to have dopamine rushes. And, you know, it's a bit like um, I like ice cream and chocolate. And, you know, kind of my favourite beer in the world is Baron's beer, as you know. But the idea, if I was if I was eating chocolate all the time, I the time and drinking back beer apart from the fact that i'd get habituated to it i'd also probably have type 2 diabetes as well because i'd be so overweight so it's almost like our lives we need novelty we need bits of excitement and but if we have too much of it and once that habituates that then we're really in a in an abyss yeah but that's not the problem for most kids at the school because they're not getting too much of too much but maybe they're getting too much of lots of little things that perhaps are not sustaining a sense of purpose or meaning. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So I think you brought up to a very good important point, which is the purpose and meaning. And I think, uh, if I'm not wrong, you are alluding to uh, Daniel Pink, who wrote the book Drive. Now, he talks about finding a sense of purpose and meaning in life is central to motivation and self-direction. Now, can you just explain a little bit about why or how this can actually help with the mental well-being of uh, our students? Well, I mean, Daniel Pink, I mean, in fair play to him, yep. um, done tremendously well with that book and subsequent work, and he's a good writer. Um, but he makes a point that I think kind of is is something that we, we fundamentally know, but perhaps kind of forget about. It's like everybody knows that exercise is good for you, but a lot of people don't. So, you know, he, he, he wrote that book in such a poignant way to say, look, people need to find some kind of purpose. I mean, it's yeah. a bit like doing this podcast channel that people don't send us lots of money. And if they do, it's you that's pocket. Not yet. They have not sent us yet. So if you are listening to this, you know what to right. do. <laughs> so we, yeah, right. So do invite us to exotic places and treat us. Where we, we, you know, we will consider that as a sense of kindness and graciousness, won't we? <laughs> and anyway, yeah. Um, but the, the, the bottom line is, one of our purposes, yeah, if you like, gives us meaning. Is we know that teachers make a massive difference. In fact, they're the yep. most single most important aspect of educational quality, and we know that good teachers can make very positive impact on young people in terms of not their fears but their life choices in and that's the idea of education we want to educate the old person to be employable to be good and also to have meaningful lives that have some kind of purpose to them so it seems such a fundamental educational question um but to me yeah I, I was influenced quite a lot, and I think you've read um, some of the work of uh, Viktor Frankl, who yep. um, famous neurologist and psychiatrist, and um, he um, he was in Auschwitz and he survived it. And there's a lot of things he did to survive, but one of the things was to uh, just maintain a belief one that this will end, it will end, and he can then, in his own mind, create an inner world where he was still developing his theories, um, the theory of logotherapy. We won't go into that as a theory, but it's it's very much a, a therapy of dealing with the here and now and recognising that suffering, and this is a really big point. People don't like to talk about these things, but I think there's, there's two things that we can say about the human condition. And one is that suffering is an objective reality. You know, we can talk about beauty being in the eye of the beholder. We can talk about, uh, you know, the meaning of the universe and all that. But one thing that we definitely know is that human beings suffer. It's an objective fact. Um, the form of suffering and the extent varies, but people yep. do suffer. And I think the only other thing we can talk about is the very fact that we seem to have the ability for conscious reflection. Like, as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about what you're saying. I'm thinking about what the readers, the listeners, sorry, say readers, because I write the journal papers as well and, and articles in newspapers. But thinking about what is useful you know, for them to listen to or read, that metacognition, we have, it's a philosophical point, we have some degree, I believe, of free will. I think we are pushed and pulled by unconscious processes. But because we have this advanced prefrontal cortex, we have the possibility not to be dominated by the limbic system or that, you know, if we go back to the chimp paradox, you know, the chimp might kick out and want to do this, but we can, you know, you, you read quite a bit on stoicism and I've read a fair bit and I think I'm quite stoic or I try to be. That means 
I try not to run away and get too excited about everything. I, you know, enjoy the moment. But equally, if things don't go right and, you know, yep. the Murphy's Law kicks in, n- not to get too emotional. Oh, it's the end of the world. Oh, oh my God. You know, and I, I do see with quite a few people that small things seem to create um, a, a lot of stress, whereas to me, yep. it's kind of... It's like yeah. it's a tad annoying. Yeah. Why, why is that so? Okay. Dead, dead. You're firing no, no, dead. through your body. Then why is that yeah. so? Why why is it that nowadays every little thing triggers people? Even in Singapore, I don't know whether is it because now social media allows people, to, you know, to to capture these behaviors a lot more. But I'm beginning to see even after you know when all the restrictions were lifted, uh, every little thing seemed to trigger people with extreme behaviors. Uh, just like somebody bumping into someone and that person getting angry and then hitting that guy, uh, literally pummeling him with his fist, uh, a little uh, fender, a bender, and then a violence turns out because another person takes out a, 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 a baton to, to start to hammer the, the, the supposed uh, perpetrator. Why, why do you think this happens? Yeah, I do think, I mean, you're saying that happens in Singapore. I mean, um... yeah. When I, I lived in Singapore for um, what twenty five years, um, I, I I can hardly ever remember a, a Singaporean being unpleasant to me. I mean, um, and I do think that's part of the culture of trying to promote kindness and graciousness. But underneath it, um, you know, they might feel um, um, that they you know want to lash out a little bit. I did notice. I think that the worst behaviour I think I experienced from Singaporeans, and they kind of admit to this, is that they they are aloof. Iasu when they're driving cars. So Singaporeans were generally kind, gracious, and whatever. But um, <laughs> on the road, um, the, you know, they could be quite unforgiving in the way they drove. Um, I did actually find a technique. This is kind of interesting because I thought to myself, given that Singaporeans are generally um, whether whether it, you know it, it, it's it's a deeply ingrained cultural habit, and I think that's a good thing. And maybe you know we do have to think about the, the socialization process. What I noticed that when I drove a car, if I wound the window down and if I wanted to kind of change lanes or do something or get someone to give way, if I if I kind of looked out the window, obviously I still had to keep focused on the road and saw the person, made a bit of eye contact, and I just point to where I wanted to go. They would almost hundred percent let me do that yeah so kind of interest in that that kind of thing so i do think that kind of with human beings we have we we have the capability to be and i think it's inherent to be naturally quite selfish and that can be developed through letting people get away with being selfish or creating so many kind of new stimuluses that they're constantly looking for immediate gratification which is selfishness or we can try to develop as well uh, the kind of metacognitive capability of saying, well, hold on a minute. Um, if we're all kind of kind and we try to be gracious and we try to be cooperative, that human beings have that kind of paradox that they can be very self or like, you know, when, when there's a disaster somewhere, like I remember the tsunami in Asia, so yep. many people and now with Ukraine giving money, giving time. So, you know, it's almost like the, old religious metaphor uh, and i'm not being um metaphysical but we've got a little angel on one shoulder and a little devil on another shoulder and you know kind of we can we can feed the devil a little bit more sometimes and we feed the angel a little bit more sometimes so we i think we need as a society to think very carefully about what we want to develop um in people and and try to mitigate the the negative aspects of kind of hedonism and materialism maybe i mean it's just a frame right okay so uh quick sum up of the first part that we talked about you know to start to begin to uh handle a little bit more of our own mental well-being look at finding purpose and meaning uh the other thing that i think you have uh, talked about quite a fair bit is uh it can be summed up in three areas uh, the importance of uh, to meet these uh, psychological needs of competence, relatedness, and autonomy. Let's do or uh, unpack each one of them. What do we mean by a psychological need to feel competence? What does yeah. that mean? Yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the, that, that 
uh, those three universal psychological needs comes from the work of um, Ryan, yes, Ryan. Yeah. self-determination theory. And I read all of their work and more I read of it, uh, at first I'm kind of thinking to myself, it's a little bit simplistic. But then again, if you look at the human condition, Mark, um, yeah. um, the, um, the brain is complex and the mind is complex. It's not that difficult to understand. Like motivation, pleasure, pain avoidance, novelty. How we learn. It's all, there's all these complex things going on in the mind. But it's all about, isn't it? And we know it's connecting new knowledge to prior knowledge, getting students to think so that there's repetition and it builds memory in in the brain neurologically you yeah. know, it's, it's like football i mean who is it i think manchester city have bought this new player um and um he's he's being paid four hundred thousand pound a week i think now that's <laughs> but what does he do he kicks the ball around you know um kind of he gets the ball and he passes it to someone or he kicks it or he heads it or if he's really good he gets away with a handball but not so easy now with var and he gets paid all that money so football is a simple game but to do it well is complex so i think kind of human behavior to understand what to do that's useful is not that difficult it's actually the self-regulation to do it so going back to those three things um competence well I think all humans want to achieve some desired goals. They want to feel that they can do something well. Yep. You're a kid at school and you're doing bad in English. You're doing bad at maths. Everything you're doing bad. And, you know, people are taking the mickey out of you and saying, oh, you know, you're useless and all of that. And then you go on social media and you get bullied. I mean, that's a terrible situation to be in. The um, the the pop group Sham 69, I think it was, had a song many years ago called I Wish I Could Be Like David Watts. Who is David Watts? David Watts, yeah. Who is David, David Watts? Watts? Yeah. Yeah, is the guy who looks good, you know, is probably more physically well developed, you know, he, he's a good footballer, the girls like him, and he seems to have you know, he, he's you know a favour one, and other kids are perhaps saying, "Oh well, I, I wish I could be like that." You know, so I do think that you know, kids who are not experiencing a sense of competence, um, you know, could well drift into that lack of well-being and start to have a, a possibility of developing some kind of mental health issue. The second one, relatedness, is being part of something. So if you're David Watts and you're competent, you're good. At Oh, you know, you're a good footballer and you know, people want to be your mate, you know, like I want to join your you know, your gang sort of thing. You've got an you know, all the families, oh David Watts, oh he, he you know, he, he's he's great, he's good at this, he's good at that. In other words, he's getting that sense that I belong to something and autonomy, the idea that we like to have some control or choice that you know, I can say, well, I don't really want to have to do X or Y, recognising that sometimes I might have to do it, but the sense of having that choice of control. So yeah. the other thing is that if we can have environments, what Desi and Ryan or Ryan and Desi, and whichever way, they spin their names in different books. What they're saying is if you've got an environment that is giving kids uh, and this would be in the home as well. And I think that's another issue. I mean, with lots of domestic issues, if kids are in those environments, they may not be getting their needs met at all. In fact, very much the opposite. So in environments that nurture um, competence, uh, relatedness and autonomy, kids are more likely to grow and experience good well-being. And if they've got that, they're less likely to have mental health issues. Whereas if they're in a family environment that is, is stultifying those needs and then they go to school and they're not doing well and they're not fitting in, it's a, it's a perfect recipe for um, some kind of internal dysfunction, given that the mind is naturally chaotic. So that is likely to create a lot of the socially constructed problems because of the, the, mm. the existential needs not being met. Uh, and then it, it gets compounded by, you know, the, the socialisation um, experiences that people are in. Does that make, does that clarify a bit? Yeah, it does. Okay. So uh, what about sometimes, you know, some of the literature talks about autonomy in terms of providing choice. Uh, how, how does that link to, to, to that idea of what you just said? 
Well, if you think about it, um, it connects to something else that I think is well documented, and even Desi Ryan talked yeah. about it. If you look at school curricula, I mean, yeah. I'll be if you know if you if you um, I, I did give you a copy of um, one of my books, and if you read the first page, I talk about Michael Ratter. Um, he did a massive bit of research. I think it was in the sixties. And he basically, the book was called 15,000 Hours. And what he basically says is, we spend 15,000 hours in school. And the question is, well, what do you learn? What do you get from that? And I actually said in the book um, and uh, that the only two useful things I learned in school, if I look back on it, was football and boxing. And I said, well, football was great because one is, you know, it gave me a sense of, you know, identity and meaning. And it means that when I went to Singapore, if you remember, I made a, a conscious effort to integrate into Singapore society. And I ran a football team and we played many games together, if you remember that. Yeah. And what a great way to, to get into Singapore society, because if you join a football team and coach a football team, right away you've got a group of probably 20-odd mates. Uh, and so, um, you know, that that's one kind of... Um, interesting thing but that's all and boxing what boxing meant for me at school was that i didn't get bullied and i was able to keep my lunchbox which yep. was pretty good in terms of an hierarchy of needs forget about self-actualization maslow i mean i don't think there's any verification of of that at all um but what is important is if you, if you get to eat your food, you're, you're, you're less likely to get physically and mentally deprived, aren't you? So, it, you know, to me, keeping my lunchbox was quite a useful um, thing. Um, so, it, but the school curriculum, and you know, I mean, if you look at the school curriculum, how much of it is packaged to to cater to students' real needs in modern society. I mean, if you look at maths, if you look at maths, I'm not knocking O-level maths or anything like that. I'm not saying you shouldn't teach it in school, but for most kids, do they need to do all the quadratic equations, simultaneous equations? Can't we have a curriculum that is primarily at base level about learning about yourself, obviously, to be able to speak well. Yes, let's take the 21st century competence, good communication skills, collaboration, good thinking skills, metacognition. That These should be more of the focus of the curriculum. You know, if you're going to learn history, learn history is something that I think... Um, who was it? Um, it said Winston Churchill, that the further you can look back... but the better you can see into the future. But you've got to understand history isn't simply memorising a lot of facts that speak for themselves. But to look at history as a collection of human stories and what makes those stories helpful to understanding yourself and society and how you can learn better, think better and contribute more. I do think that, that, that there's a reframing of the curriculum needed. And a lot of the causes, certainly in the UK, is that there is uh, so much top-down control uh, on, on, on things and it's all about KPIs and accountability. And um, somehow, we, we, I think there has to be a lot of changes in terms of what students learn and a focus more on human needs, psychological functioning and, and real-life competencies. Obviously, functional skills in the sciences and um, technology, but also in terms of understanding yourself, self-regulation, uh, being able to plan your learning, evaluate your learning, those kind of things, that there needs to be curriculum changes. We are now getting students in school to look at things like growth mindset, which I think is a good thing that that if students believe that with good teaching and we want to, you know, we're all here to promote good teaching. If you've got good teaching, you've got curriculum that is more intrinsically motivating, more relevant. Students can understand themselves better, understand the world better, learn key concepts across subjects that we 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 are building a, a better educational base now at the end of the day what goes on in people's families and when kids go on social media uh, we haven't got control over that but if we can help students to self-regulate better to think better 
uh, it, they might be able to deal with those other existential challenges within families and dealing with bullying on social media. Nobody bullies me on social media. And if they did, I'd just shut them down. I ain't going to lose any sleep over it. But I can do that. A 15-year-old kid, you know, thinking about themselves and friends, you know, with the issues that they face as 15-year-olds and not able to do that. Just like now, I can travel the world and talk to anybody with confidence. I couldn't do that when I was 15. Are you still there? Mark? If you can uh, just continue where you left off, uh, yeah, I'll somehow yeah. try and put it back together. Yeah, you're not putting in some advert for your company. <laughs> you're just cutting it out. No, yeah, no. Uh, we do quite well. Given that we are um, that we are eight and a half thousand miles away, something like that, and yeah. um, it, we don't get too many technical problems. Yeah, the the, the last you know summary of the last area is that um, we've got to focus i think in schools in the curricula um on getting students to become i think the term we've used before more agentic able to understand themselves better have the confidence to um manage themselves better and to learn better so that they they've got some kind of resources to deal with both the existential aspects of growing up as well as all the stuff that's flying around on social media and society so uh, all we can do is try to build their capability at the end of the day um there's always going to be um issues to do with well-being and mental health but what we're trying to do is to is to mitigate those systemically as much as we can and give people better opportunities to to self-regulate and deal with these um challenges Right. Okay. So let's end off this part. Uh, and we just, I think there's one more concept, which is the idea of relatedness as a uh, psychological need. Is that to do with the need for humans to be social? Is that what relatedness means? Yeah, to feel part of it. It's why, you know, the families have evolved and survived. And sometimes in families, there's often discord. Uh, but the idea at the end of the day um, that y your family, in many cases, will be there as a support structure. Now, once kids get to, like, teenagers, yeah, the family's always there. But maybe to them, their mates, their friends, their peer groups are more important to them. So you can get your relatedness from your family. You can get it from yep. peers. Feeling part of a group, I think, for the for the individual who doesn't feel that they're comfortable with their family or comfortable with peers, you know, is somebody who could easily drift into a sense of personal enemy, alienation, feeling worthless, not. You know, and not feeling competent as well and not knowing what to do that it's a bit of a it's it's a bit of a nemesis for those sort of individuals so you know and as schools we are trying to make i think you know make things more inclusive and a lot of effort is being made to create relatedness um but it's got to happen. It's not got to be some policy. We've got to try to do it at the behavioural level. We can all talk about, oh, well, let's make something fun. But is it is it actually fun to the people there? So how, how we do that has got to be a collaborative thing, I think, between um, teachers, parents and students to try to say, well, how can we all have this sense of, well, we are looking after each other and as a teacher what i try to do with students i know you do the same is we want the students we want them to do their work and we know that you know respect is important but we want them to feel that we are that ally we're not there to try to tell them off to try and catch them out to try to show that you can't do it but we want them to be successful and we don't want to be telling them off and sending them out and punishing them but you know at the end of the day this is the other aspect and i think it's important that we we talk about students rights and i think that's important you know but 
they've got to there's got to be an equal balance of communicating to students early on in schools that they have responsibility as well it's not i will do it for you we'll provide this we'll provide that they've got to learn they've got to make effort they've got to recognize that a lot of activities that they do in schools are challenging not always interesting but they've got to develop resilience i see resilience building resilience and that's you know i've got I've sometimes i've got to say yes to doing the work even if i don't see the purpose of it obviously it helps us teachers if we can make the curriculum more relevant and say this is why you're learning this because you better do this and in the real world it means something if we've got a curriculum that we can't justify as being useful it's going to be hard to make them constantly do that but it's a bit like, look, when, I, when when we train at football, we might not like a lot of the training, but we want to play football. If we were just training all the time, we never played football, we'd probably stop doing the training. So um, I think these are, that's the big point is we've got to make school um, more meaningful and more related and um, hopefully give students some choice in what they learn and how they learn. That's not a learning styles issue. But, um, making them look constantly learn stuff that they don't see any purpose or meaning is it's always going to be a bit of a recipe for classroom management to some extent. Okay, so maybe to wrap up this segment, the first part, uh, one tip for our listeners who are teachers: what is it that they can do to help with purpose and meaning? What they can do to help uh, kids find mental health balance with competence, autonomy and relatedness. Just one. Yeah, well, one thing is try to have conversations with kids where we talk about those things in non-threatening ways and to communicate that as a teacher and as a school, we are doing our best for you, but you've also got to put a shift in yourself. Get that message across. Right. Okay, cool. Nice, short, sharp and sweet. So that brings us to the end to the, the first part of our conversation. And as usual, we'll now move on to the second part. And this is where I know it's Dennis's favorite segment <laughs> where he shares something or we share something actually that we have found interesting and it could be something that we would have read, something that we have watched and maybe even something that we use as a tool that we want to share with our listeners. So you want to go first then? Yeah, well, the only thing I, I, I'm kind of thinking about now um, with technology and how I'm going to um, use it more effectively. And I've kind of noticed I've got a huge YouTube channel, but I've done nothing to it for five years. And I, yeah, I'm looking at it. And I think to myself, hold on a minute. I've got to learn how to um, make my YouTube channel a little bit more um, current and a little bit more interesting because I look at it now and it's boring me. So I don't, for people that go on my YouTube channel, uh, I, I apologize. I am going to over the next two or three months, try to be more creative with the technologies that Mark is introducing us to and um, make it a better learning experience. Right. Okay, cool. Uh, I have one uh, that I wanted to share. Uh, actually, uh, I watched, uh, and it's not a movie. I have another one to share, I promise. I managed to catch the sequel of Top Gun. I don't know whether it's now being shown in the cinemas in uh, the UK, but it's been 37 years in the making. And finally, uh, it's Tom Cruise and uh, yeah. it's the sequel to Top Gun. I'm not sure if you have watched it. Have you watched it then? No, no, I've never watched Top Gun. You, you have not watched it? Okay, I think you should. It's quite a fun movie to watch. Tom Cruise fan, to be frank. Uh, <laughs> He's not one of the actors that um, has inspired me. I'd take Robert Mitchum and um, who else? Probably, uh, that's before your time. Um, yeah, I would take that over him, really. I don't... Even Arnold, Schwar Arnold Schwarzenegger in the film Predator 1, I know people knock Arnie in lots of ways, but nobody could have played that part better than Arnie. Tom Cruise, yeah, of course he's a good actor. Of course he's got talent. I don't think he can survive in Hollywood, you know, just purely on being a pretty face. Um, but no, I've never really... Yeah, I'm, I'm not even seen Top Gun. I, watched, I saw him in The War of the Worlds too, and it didn't. The, the original film in, in the 1960s uh, I thought was much better. Right. Okay. No, actually, I have a, I do have an educational tech tool that I wanted to share. That was just something yeah. that I, I did over last weekend. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the, the app that I would like to recommend is this app 
called Book Creator. Now, Book Creator is a simple tool to create digital books uh, where authors can add photos, videos, or drawings to enhance uh, or tell their stories. Uh, it's easy to use for making multimedia digital books in any subject area from second primary to secondary school and upwards. Uh, and I think this is actually quite interesting because uh, I was thinking about, you know, how do I want to get my students to share some of the work that they are doing in class? Can they put it together, do a bit of meta uh, reflection, deep reflection, think about the way they are thinking, and then also record some of this in a kind of ebook. So I was looking for a tool like that and I managed to find Book Creator. Uh, you can create a free account uh, and I'll put, of course, put the link in the show notes so that you can try it out. So take a look at it and see if you can use it, you know, for students to go and create their own multimedia books. How's that? Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, we know when we talk about kind of, you know, sort of learning styles, which are not, it's not a useful concept. And I think we'll have a chat about that at some stage. We're all primarily visual learners, probably about 80%. As Mlody now said, the animal that sees better eats better. Um, so <laughs> two systems pretty well developed. So to you, to be able to curate images, pictures, videos, and put narratives around those is, is a great way to um, kind of, learn yourself and also to display um messages and um and, and understandings to other people so sounds an interesting tool okay cool so that really brings us to an end to today's episode again let me apologize for the technical difficulties uh it's quite amazing that we have managed to go about 30 plus over episodes before we have had a major one uh yeah so if you'd want to write to us you can always do so by writing to us at evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. Once again, it is evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. I'll put that email address in the show notes. And that's a wrap. So what's the plan for the weekend, Dennis? Uh, well, for me, um, if the weather stays good, I may risk putting on my wetsuit and going to water and um, see if there's any bass that wants to surrender um for dinner. Uh, let me just say that I don't go in the water to kill fish because I like killing things, but uh, I do uh, I do eat fish and um, and I do enjoy spoiler fishing, so uh, I hope that doesn't offend any animal rights people. I would never shoot a fish just to shoot a fish. Okay, cool. So, yep, uh, that's a wrap for this week. So, take care, everyone, and we'll see each other soon. Take care and bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye.